0: Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. It's been a few weeks since the last episode. A couple of business trips to Savannah and LA threw me off my schedule, but I was able to record a few more interviews while I was traveling. This week's episode was recorded in January, when I visited Jerry Schatzberg at his Upper West Side apartment. A renowned photographer and film director, Jerry is now 90 years old, yet is still working incredibly hard. I first met Jerry five years ago to discuss having him shoot a story for Lady Magazine's first issue. Though I knew his photographs and films well, I was immediately blown away by him in person. His physicality and attitude is such that even in his ninth decade, he was one of the sexiest men I had ever met. In an instant, I understood how he cultivated such intimacy in both his fashion images and portraits. His attitude is such that both women and men were drawn in by his aura. In this conversation, we discuss how Jerry slowly broke away from the family fur business to start as a photographer's assistant in the 1950s, which then very quickly took him to shooting the Paris collections for Vogue by the end of the decade. Perfectly placed and well-suited to document the pop culture shifts of the 60s, Shatsburg photographed such luminaries as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan while also hosting raucous parties for them at his studio. As celebrated as his subjects, Jerry appeared often in the gossip columns as a man about town, especially once he became part owner in two of the hippest nightclubs in town. First, Uptown was Dean, then Salvation in the West Village. Jimi Hendrix memorably played Salvation's opening night. In 1967, Schatzberg became even more of a tabloid favorite when he took up with an up-and-coming young actress, Faye Dunaway. The pair were briefly engaged and he took many of the most iconic photographs of her just as she hit superstardom with Bonnie and Clyde. While filming Amanti in Italy, Faye fell in love with Marcello Mastrioni, yet she remained friends with Schatzberg and starred as a mentally ill fashion model in his first film, Puzzle of a Downfall Child, which premiered in 1970. Jerry was always attracted to more offbeat characters, drifters, and those on the edges of society. In this conversation, he explains what attracted him to the characters and films that defined his career such as Al Pacino as a heroin addict in The Panic and Needle Park, and Pacino again with Gene Hackman as Vagabonds and Scarecrow, for which Schatzberg won the top prize of the 1973 Cannes Film Festival. Jerry's interest in films such as these led him to turn down blockbusters and choose a less conventional directorial path. As with the other interviewees in this series, he molded his life and career by following his passions. As we discuss, this has led to somewhat strained relationships with his children, but has also provided him with a creative life that still fulfills him. We talk at length about the creative process, the act of developing an idea into a script over many years, and the difficulties then faced in getting it to the screen. Jerry is currently at work on a script, as well as new books and exhibitions of his photographic work. Jerry has lived a long and fascinating life. To speak with someone still so creatively inspired after many decades was, for me, incredibly invigorating. Inspiring as a creator of photographs and films, Jerry Schatzberg is equally as inspiring for his thoughts, perspectives, and passion for life. Head to ladyworld.tv to read a short article about Schatzberg, see a slideshow of his photographs, view all of the trailers for his films, and to sign up for our newsletter. Enjoy. Thank you for sitting down and agreeing to talk with me today. Nice Pleasure. to see you again. Yeah. It seems like you've been incredibly busy the past couple of months.
1: Yeah, we have been uh, busy. We've got uh, a couple of things going. Um, we're looking at doing a show. We're, we're working on a book. I've signed up with a new company in uh, Great Britain to uh, handle the archive
0: somewhat, you
1: know, and uh, all of that starts piling up. And, uh hmm. Yeah, so it keeps you busy. It's it's better that way. Yeah,
0: definitely. What would the new book
1: be? The new book would be uh, an old book. Uh, Actually, a uh, take-off on the Dylan book that I did uh, for Genesis, which is a limited edition, Mm -hmm. and you have to get it from them. So this will be a more commercial commercial book that is uh, available in stores, and uh, they'll change it around a bit, you know, but Mm -hmm. uh, at least it'll be open to more people to... to, to, to yeah. get easier, and it won't be as expensive as the other one.
0: So you uh, you grew up in the Bronx, right?
1: Well, until I was thirteen. Thirteen. Then uh, we moved to Queens. Okay. And um, I stayed there until I went into the Navy. I was, uh, I was eighteen when I went to the Navy. Stayed there for a couple of years. Thinking that we were going to have a long run of it, because when I went in, they were they were plan- they were thinking that the war would go on another two years, mm. and uh, I went in in June and in August they dropped the bomb, and that changed everything. So I had to stay and you know do my time. but The, the, the duty that I had was much different than it might have been if the war was still on. Mm. And I did that, and then I came back to. Uh, Queens. I had a childhood girlfriend. We we knew each other since we were sixteen, and that developed into a marriage. We uh, stayed married for about we stayed married for uh, nineteen years. But after six years, I separated, and um, we just stayed married for the next thirteen years. I have a friend, um, a photographer, who's not living anymore, but. You always used to get a kick out of me saying, I had, um, yeah, you know, I was married for 19 years and the last 13 were fantastic. You know? <laughs> it's not funny for the other yeah. people, but uh, it's a joke.
0: And at that time when you were married and actually together with her, were you working at your family's furrier business or what were you doing? Uh,
1: when I got out of the Navy, I went into that. No, no, when I got out of the Navy, I went to school for a uh, mm-hmm. University of Miami. And then I decided to go to work. I went to the uh, family business, which I didn't like, and uh, I stayed there. and I used to go to, uh, out to lunch, I used to go to Willoughby's. Willoughby's was like B&H's, but much smaller version. B&H is amazing. You know, when people come here and they say, well, what can we do? I said, well, you go to B&H, it's really <laughs> amazing. But I used to go to Willoughby's, which was not far from where I worked, and I'd uh, get lost there. I'd Take two-hour lunches, and my father would be furious because uh, he worked work there with his brothers. You know, his son takes two-hour lunches, and so on. But I stayed there for a while, and one day I was uh, sitting in the back, and I saw an ad in the New York Times for a photographer's assistant. I had no idea what that was, but I just loved seeing all the equipment all the time, and you know, it just it was interesting to me.
0: Had you always been interested in photography no. and the arts? No, just... I think
1: when I was getting out of the Navy, I asked my... Uh, I mean, I was a kid, I had a plastic camera.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I was, uh, get, when I was getting out of the Navy, I asked my folks to get me a camera. So I had a camera. When I got married, I upgraded a little bit on the camera, but not much. And uh, my uncle worked for a company that if you took their diapers, you'd get a free picture of your child. So I, I asked... Well, first I went to uh, see this, um, see what this ad was for. So I told this guy, you know, he asked me about myself, I told him, and he laughed. You know, he thought I had a lot of nerve trying to get into something that I knew nothing about. He said, But well, come in and we'll see what we do. I, I came in, he sent me to Lillian Bassman's studio. I don't know if you know Lillian mm-hmm. Bassman. He sent me to Lily Bassman's studio because uh, her husband was looking for an assistant. He was in Europe. So I went there for the interview, actually the first person I saw eventually became a stylist in my studio for me, and I brought her into film and she became a fashion uh, designer for my films, for I guess eight, nine, ten of my films.
0: What
1: was her name? Joe (laughs) Innocencio. Through that she got other jobs, and then when I needed her she if she was available, she'd come, but if not, she'd have to stay with people. Mm-hmm. But she, she had a nice career, and uh, so I I worked there for a couple of years. No, I, I, I told my my uncle, took me out where he goes. He he would sell the pictures, you know, he'd get the free pictures, so he'd take the free picture to their uh, homes and then try to sell them 40 $50 worth of pictures. Mm-hmm and these people didn't have money. They, uh, I, I just couldn't bear the fact that he, he didn't hear them say no. He never heard them say no. he just keep on going. He'd go away with... If you, if you sold $9, dollars you get full commission. He'd sell $30, $40 worth of pictures, and I didn't want to do that. I said, Well, who takes the pictures? Says, oh, there's no money in that. I said, How much money? Because I turned the job down at Lillian's, because they could only offer me $25 a week. And wife, kids,
0: yeah.
1: didn't, didn't seem to work out. And then my uncle had this thing going, so I thought, and then they, Lillian could only offer me uh, $25, and um, I didn't have uh, my uh, GI Bill anymore, I didn't have any of that, so I had to get a real job. And uh, he said, uh, "He said there's no money in taking the pictures." I said, "How much money is there?" He says, "Well, they'll give you um, ten sittings a day. It's two dollars a sitting. That's twenty dollars a day. It's better than twenty-five dollars a week." And I said, "Well," he said, "Well, no, it doesn't quite work that way. I, I'd rather, I'd rather get into the photography." So I started doing that. I borrowed money from my mother to buy a camera. They showed me how you do it. You put a screen up in the back of the kid. Put them on a table and put them on their stomach. They cross their arms like this and they lay on their stomach and they can't break that because they don't have the strength to break that. So most of the kids' pictures you see are kids on their stomach with their arms mm-hmm. crossed like that. And so I did that for a while and I uh, I didn't like it. Because uh, I come to the first place, the child's sleeping. They won't let you in. The next place, the child's sick. They won't let you in. You end up doing two sittings a day. So I went to, uh, I went back to my uncle, he got me out selling pictures. I figured on my own, I could just pick up from friends and the family and all that, do baby pictures. So then I went out selling and I didn't do very well at that. And about a year later, I called this guy again and he remembered me and he laughed again. And he said, come on in, I'll see what I can do. And that's the time he got me a job with the photographer. And I started working for Bill Helburn. I worked for him for two and a half years and then I went out on my own. And uh, the great thing about working for Bill, if you worked hard, it, it allowed you to use a studio at night with so many people coming in to want to be models and all that and that you were able to do test shots in them. They need the pictures and you need the pictures because that's how you learn. I think I was I was in business six months, eight months, and I went up to Vogue and I had enough for them to say, uh, okay, you know, the Lieberman said, uh, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an assignment. And I didn't really believe him. When I left, uh, I said to his secretary, um, uh, if, if I don't hear from him in two or three months, can I call back? He said, if you don't hear from him two or three weeks, you can call back. By the time I got back to the studio, he had already called to give me an assignment.
0: It's amazing.
1: So, yeah, it was. Now, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, but then I started working for them. I worked for them for two and a half years. And there was a, McCall's was, a, they had a new art director. They were doing really terrific work. And I thought I'd like to work for them. So I asked him if it would be all right. And he said, no. He said, if you work for us, you've got to stay with us. And I thought about it. And I, I felt that McCall's was really doing interesting work. So I left Vogue and I went to uh, work for them. I, we did some good work there. I was able to come back to Condé Nast. I never was able to get back to Vogue. I, yeah, I could work for uh, French Vogue or English Vogue, but I couldn't work for American Vogue.
0: Mm-hmm. And then,
1: you know, things just kept on rolling. And, uh...
0: I was doing a bit of research and through the Vogue archive and it seems like you started February and then by June you had your own cover.
1: With uh, Vogue?
0: Yeah, it seemed very quick. Yeah.
1: I think it did. It did sound very quick. Was it that fast? Yeah, that? it was really.
0: Really. Like the first. Well, the first time I could find a picture by you was February '58, I think. And then. That sounds right. And then that cover you know, was a couple of months later.
1: Yeah, because then I, I, I was doing uh, I did a collection in '58 mm-hmm. for them, I think, and uh, which is the book that I did with Martinka, um, and I liked that book. I liked the photographs in that. Yeah. It was behind the scenes. Collections. What else are you (laughs) investigating? (laughs) My ears burning. Uh, Your Um, ears burning.
0: So once you got into photography, what? Obviously, you must have loved it because you stuck with it. What? What was the? I almost
1: didn't have a choice. You know, I've got kids that I've got to support, uh, and I hated uh, working in the family business, and uh, it wasn't going to change. That wasn't going to change. I started to do it, and I almost immediately I felt a difference in my life. You know, and I was living out on the island with my family and I had to travel in uh, almost two hours a day to get in and back, uh, you know, and, uh, but I was really loving it. And uh, Bill was terrific. He, if you, you know, when, uh, he had two assistants and we were both very loyal to him, but um, uh, the models needed pictures and all the agencies knew that. He had been doing this for a couple of years and he showed me what, what, what it was all about. And uh, I started working with some of the agencies uh, and they liked my photographs, so they started sending me better models and, and I, I... But Bill, uh, he would let you, if, you know, as long as you're loyal to him, he'd let you have the studio at night and you could use his cameras, mm-hmm. his equipment and everything. So that was a big break. He didn't pay very much, yeah. but uh, that's all right.
0: At what point did you shift your life away from Long Island and to the city?
1: Well, while I was working for Bill, maybe I was working for him for a year, year and a half, and I started uh, with my wife. Um, she just didn't really take to it. She didn't like the, uh, maybe she felt threatened by it, or I don't know, but it was the only thing I had. I had to uh, do that, and we started to have family problems and all that, and you just uh, have to swing with it.
0: Because by the the 60s, you were sort of a man about, known as sort of a man about town and like the, almost I guess a celebrity in your own right.
1: Well, you know, things did happen pretty fast after that. There was, I think I started my own studio in 56 or 57, something like that. And then uh, I started to meet different people and, you know, uh, one thing leads to another and uh, I think the big, one big change, and especially if you're working for Vogue, uh, they start to give you more celebrities to photograph and you start to talk to people. And, but I, uh, I think with... Um, and I had been photographing musicians uh, and because of the... Uh, I was very friendly with the English photographers mm-hmm. and uh, I'd go over there one year, I went there 11 times to shoot things and uh, we just had great times. And I remember after the Beatles came here uh, David Bailey uh, said, ''Ah, oh, yeah, but they're not like the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are really great and all that.'' And I said, ''Well, i got to hear them.'' And one time when I was over there, we were having brunch, and, uh, and this guy comes in with long, dirty fingernails and a sweater. And Jagger, you know, and, and we started talking, and I uh, realized he was the one that Bailey was talking about. And um, I said, ''When are you playing?'' ''Because I'd love to hear you.'' He said, we're playing this afternoon, and they were. I said, oh, maybe we can go down there, and he called up the theater, put some tickets aside, and we all drove down there. And uh, he was he was in a car with Chrissy Shrimpton, who was his girlfriend, and we all had cars behind, following. When we got to the theater, I saw these people, these kids, they, and they saw him, and they started screaming and all that. And they, they pulled in the driveway, we pulled in the driveway to get the stage entrance, and... Uh, and he couldn't get next to the stage entrance, so Chrissy stopped, he just opened the door and ran. They grabbed his sweater, and they're pulling him and all that. I said, what in the world is this? He went in, and there were about three three groups before that. One, one in green outfits, one in blue outfits, one in red outfits, and I figured they're probably putting on their yellow outfits, you know? And he came out in his torn sweater, and just the way he was, and the whole group was that way, and I realized there was something new happening. And, uh, and we became very friendly. We did... Uh, Jane Holzer and Nicky Haslam and I did a party the first time they came to America. And then they called it, we called it the Mod Bowl. And, um, and there were 400 people on the floor. But my, my building I was in had wooden beams, and it was the, um, the building that uh, Tiffany was in when they started as uh, silversmiths. Where, where that? Uh, 25th and Park. Okay. And the floor would go like that because it was all wooden. And uh, I, I insured the uh, party for, I think, a million dollars or something like that. And, uh, and we became very friendly. And they went on with their career, my career was coming on. And uh, we'd see each other through the years, but everybody's always working, you know. Uh, I, I, I deal a lot with Dylan because I got a big collection of him. I photographed about two and a half years, and uh, I, I was talking to his agent, his manager once, and I said, he, he's never, he, you know, he's never around. I'd love to see him. He says, you know, he's on the road 100 days a year. He's got 14 grandchildren, and I don't know how many he's got now, but at that time, so everybody has a life, and you just go on living it.
0: How did you originally meet David
1: Bailey and Terence? <laughs> well, I first became friendly with um, Terence Donovan, and uh, Terry came over, he just wanted to come to America, and he stayed at the Y when he came here. He was, his career was just starting, mm-hmm. but he was telling me about his buddies, uh, Bailey and Duffy and, uh, and a whole bunch of other guys, uh, and it just really sounded good. And of course, everything was coming from London, the designs, the music, everything was coming from there. and uh, I, and I, the first place I went uh, in Europe was uh, Great Britain, was London. I, went, I think one year I went there 11 times. Every time somebody had somebody to shoot, I said, you got to shoot it in London, you know. We just gradually all met, and, we, we, you know, we, I was here, what they were there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we were just, um, always having a great time.
0: You know? I think the last time you were, I was here, you showed me a photo of Bailey and Donovan in the snow, naked. Yeah, it. on
1: my terrace, yeah. the... Um, we stayed together and uh, saw the snow. I said, Bailey, take your clothes off. He <laughs> stood in the back of the sofa, a little piece of furniture there, and uh, ba- uh, uh, Terence had a heavy coat on and all that. He's waving a little British flag. Yeah, we had great times for a long time. And everybody went on to their career.
0: At what point did you get interested in doing film?
1: I think there was always a little thing in your in my mind that the uh, film might be interesting. I didn't know much about it. And uh, I started to do some commercials, which I didn't like, uh, because it was too restricting. But I was just playing around. I had a camera. I'd uh, play around with the one or two models, I'd do things with them. I was very friendly with this uh, model, who was a big model at the time. While I was an assistant, she was a big model, but she was so wonderful, so helpful, because she knew I was struggling, and she would uh, work for me, I'd ask her, which she, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, uh, I'd like to do some pictures, like, okay, okay, and she was really a top model, and she's wonderful to work with. And then when, I, uh, when uh, Vogue uh, asked me if I wanted to do the collection, I said, yes, of course, and I wanted to take her to do the collection, and they wouldn't let me take her, because they felt she was around too long. They want a new face. Mm-hmm. And they, didn't, and they didn't care, they didn't uh, say, no, 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 we'll get a new face. How debilitating that is for a model that works all her life, this, you know, and she, she didn't need it because she'd worked in France and all over for many years. But I really wanted to do the collection with her and they wouldn't let me. And I just started to uh, investigate a little bit and I found that had happened to a lot of young ladies. And it really was tough on them, very difficult. And so uh, I but I was saying, uh, how can I show this? And I thought, well, maybe I can just do a photo story of it, and get somebody to do the text and write, a story, write, write about it. But it wasn't working. And then um, I got a call from two uh, producers from L.A. asked me if I was uh, interested in being a, a uh, an advisor on a, a series they were doing for ABC, The World's Most Beautiful Women. I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when they came into town, I talked to them. I said, well, you know, who's directing? They said, we don't have a director yet. I said, can I show you some of the things I've been doing? You know, maybe... And so I showed it to them. They showed it to the network. And everybody said, okay. So now I was a director. We went to London to our first sitting, which was at Lady Antonia Frazier. Who mm-hmm. later became Harold Pinter's wife, and uh, she was she was wonderful, and I, I liked the whole thing. I liked the setup. It was it was not very big and professional. It was just me with a camera and somebody doing sound. We were waiting for the second uh, subject to come in. That was a Queen Surrogate of Thailand, because it was not just cosmetic beauty. It was somebody of a brain. Somebody that had. Mm-hmm. Good heart to me. That was, and and Antonia was uh, writes very good historical, mm-hmm. and uh, and obviously the Queen of Thailand is uh, so. Uh, she we uh, she kept canceling, and uh, and I had an arrangement with them that if I had to go back, I'd go back, shoot what I had to shoot, and then come back again. And I had to go back. Maybe a day or two after I left, she came into London. I couldn't come back. Again. So uh, the two. Uh, producers decided they would shoot it and those two were always arguing with each other and again they went into arguing one took one segment, the other took the other segment and the network got fed up with them and they cancelled them out. So that was the end of that, but it gave me a taste of it and when I came back I said maybe that's the way to tell this story. And I uh, spoke to a friend of
2: mine,
1: Jeffrey Holder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I asked Jeffrey, you know, do you know a writer? Do you know, you know, I, I, told, I, I said, I, I really don't know much about this, but I think I, I want to do something. And he said, well, I've got a friend. He's uh, French. He's, um, he wrote very good films in the uh, s- 40s. He did, I think, Simone Signore's first film, Rock Philippe's first film. And I said, how can I get in touch with him? He gave me his number. I called him. He was coming to New York and on his way to L.A. And so I met with him. I liked him, I told him what I wanted to do. And he went on to, um, I made a deal with him, he went on to California. And then, uh, and by that time, uh, I had been with Faye Dunaway, and at the beginning of my project, she wasn't involved in it, she didn't know about it. And after when I told her about my project, she got very excited about it. And I said, because I'm gonna use two different uh, women to play the older and the younger character, and then I felt I could probably get make her older, make her younger, and use one actress, and that's what, the way I went. So she was involved with the project, and it just kept on developing. And we went through. Uh, he, he he gave me a script that was not bad, but he was such a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, I sent Fay out to see him, and he'd say, No, no, she's not right for the part. Her eyes are too close together. He's telling me things that mean nothing. You know. <laughs> and uh, I, feel, I felt I couldn't really do, work with this guy. I didn't I just stopped it, and I, I hired another, my agent made a deal with, uh, for me at Warner Brothers. I had another writer who wrote a terrible script. I would not even show it to them. Then I talking to uh, Paramount about it, but in the meantime, I had met a writer that I liked a lot, Carol Eastman. And uh, I had a producer, but he was in India all the time. I couldn't get him to make a deal with Carol. And finally, I had to dump him. And uh, I made a deal with Carol. We went to show the script. And uh, we had a deal with uh, Paramount. And when uh, Bob Evans read it, it was not what he wanted. He wanted a blow up. You know, I thought it was going to be another blow up. My film was not blow up. My agents didn't know what to do, really, because we had exhausted a few sources. And, uh, he knew that uh, the Newmans had a company, Paul and Joanne, and if they each did a film for Universal, they could produce a film that they wanted to produce. So we sent it to them, they liked it, they decided that they would do it. And that's how we uh, finally got it on. And uh, they were wonderful, you know. Uh, uh, Paul never tried to interfere. I wanted to bring them in more, you know, and I went up to Connecticut to talk to them about the script And the morning that we started to work uh, was the morning after the night that Sharon Tate was murdered, Mm -hmm. and also uh, the hairdresser that was murdered was a good friend of theirs. Sharon was a good friend of mine, and we just couldn't work, so we left. And next time I saw them, uh, maybe a couple of cocktail things, but they came out to the uh, Paul came out to the uh, opening day of shooting. Didn't interfere, just wished us luck and all that, and he was fantastic. You know, I felt obliged to when I had a a a, 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 a film put together. I took it out to Oregon where he was shooting, and we had a screening out there. It went very well. And we kept on putting it together, and that's how I got into the film business.
0: And once you started actually shooting, did it feel like this is the right next step in my life?
1: Yeah, I was a very uh, it was very difficult. It, 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 you know, I think there were certain times in my career and in my life that maybe were wrong for me because my photographs were starting to be very well received and all that, so I left the business that was where I was. I made a foothold, got a foothold,
2: mm-hmm. to do
1: something else. So instead of continuing on the one, it was a stop. I sold my studio. I figured, I'll do the one film and I'll get a studio again. Didn't work that way because I was offered the um, second film before the, fil- the first film was even finished.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My agent had seen it and she liked it, and she told these people about it. They looked at my work and I said okay. So I was uh, on my way to doing my second film, and then the third film, same almost the same thing happened. As soon as I finished the uh, second film, the third film was offered to me. So I was in the film business, and after the uh, third film, which won a prize in Cannes, I was offered an office and a job uh, with Warner Brothers to develop work for them. After struggling for 10-12 years, I wanted to get get an easy life, a little bit easier life, and it didn't work out that well because anything I wanted to develop was a little bit too way out for them and we couldn't get together. But I wasted two years. I should have just sat back, read scripts that people sent hey, me, and just continued on because um, that's how the first three were. When I was
0: doing research, it seemed like you were attached to a lot of films that never happened. Oh
1: yeah, well, um, most directors yeah. are. You know, not everybody has the uh, the kind of talent that Spielberg has. Spielberg was a genius in knowing how to please everybody. Mm-hmm. Most we have a, a certain road we go down. Mm-hmm. People that like your films, they like your film. Yeah. But he's got a different kind of talent. He's a good filmmaker. He knows how to grab the audience. And, uh, but I've always been working on two, three, four projects at a time. The, the first film took me uh, four years to get on. Mm-hmm. In between, there have been two, three, four years in between. The one I'm hoping to get on now, it's I've been working on six years now. I think it's starting to uh, happen. I know the, the script is much better now than when I started. And if I had done it six years ago, it may not have been the same film that I've got now. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be, because yeah. I know it's changed. But I think what I've got now is really good, and I feel good about it, so that's going go. I am. I I just talked to a writer two days ago through a friend of mine She's a young lady, and he said she's written a script that's fantastic. She hasn't published, she hasn't had anything produced yet, but he said, and "I trust him." So I'm, she's sending me her script, and, and she's she's a fan of my work. It helps, you know, and yeah. we get together. We're going to co co write the script now. I've got the whole story all plotted out, all my notes and everything. Just want somebody to work with on the dialogue. Yeah. Otherwise, everybody would be speaking like me. <laughs> and uh, I want to give each character a voice.
0: I mean, that's a special talent.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I started with uh, you know Jonathan Latham.
0: hmm
1: I started with Jonathan uh, last May, I think. And I thought Jonathan would be great for what I want. And he just couldn't take to the screenwriting thing. You know, he's a great novelist yeah. and they also collaborating is not for him you know he likes to get up at 3 4 o'clock in the morning sit by himself and suffer you know that doesn't happen all the time with collaboration you have two people suffering mm-hmm. you know?
0: You're, I feel like your films are so much better known or, you know, more famous outside of the United States. Yeah.
1: In, in France, I'm treated like Spielberg.
0: <laughs> what are your thoughts about why? Well,
1: it was? has a lot to do with sensibility of the uh, the uh, culture of the people. <laughs> they like what I do better than, yeah, because my first film was really not received very well by the critics. I mean, Judith Christ and uh, Pauline kale I think it was a jealousy thing because it was... a beautiful script written by a woman, and they, why didn't I write it, you know, because I, I felt that, you know, the way they were criticizing it and her, so that may be part of it, and and the people out here, they, won. you know my first film, Peppa, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, in that year, uh, 1970, it was a little bit different in style than the films that you go to see all the time, so maybe the audiences didn't, and, and the, the studio didn't believe in it. So they didn't back it. They opened it at, um, I think, uh, the Beekman or one of those theaters over on the east side. They put an ad in the paper about this big, and they picked words like smashing, this and this, you know, that they pulled out of critics' uh, review. Nobody knew it was around. And then, he wasn't a friend of mine, didn't know him, but a Frenchman who uh, used to scout for Cannes, and uh, he's very important in the film world. He's discovered a lot of people. He, uh, he was in San Francisco, because the film was invited to San Francisco the Film Festival. And uh, he, uh, he saw the program and he said, oh, I don't want to see a bullshit film by a fashion photographer. And uh, so he left it. And then when the day came, he had nothing to do. There was nothing that he could see. So he said, yeah, watch 10 minutes of it. It hooked him. So he immediately called Universal and said he wants to represent the film in uh, Europe and they had nothing to lose because they were going to put it on the shelf, take their taxes off, but here somebody's interested in it, so they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the executive in charge of the project was trying to get me to change different things, and I didn't want to change it. You know, he'd he'd show the film in his uh, private screening room, and everybody would be drunk and uh, laughing and having a good time, and, you know, there's a time to laugh in my film, certain times, but not all through the film. They weren't paying, oh, why didn't they get that? What is that all about, you know? And so he, after the screening, he tried to convince me that he had to change the beginning. He had to have somebody tell you what the film's about. And I said, no, you don't have to. I'm not going to change it unless you agree to it. I said, great. He kept me 20 minutes there, and then he changed it. But I I called, uh, because the Frenchman had already gotten in touch with me, And I knew what was happening and I called him to tell him what was happening and he called Universal and said, no I won't take the film unless it's Schatzberg's film. And so they decided they'll make a European version and an American version and the uh, European version, uh, the character Lou says something, uh, she's telling the audience a little something but then the male character tells you how he met this person and all that and he's telling you a story that had nothing to do with the style of my film and all that and I said, I was really miserable. And, uh, but um, as time went on, and they and the film started to catch on, because young people, they go see, things, so they understand it, they love it, you know, and uh, there's no problem. Uh, but and as time went on, they saw that they got a lot of play from Europe on the film, and it became a, a staple for them. But when it came time to restore the film, they took my version, because mine was the first version, so they restored that rather than the American version, and so I'm lucky. That the version that's shown around the world, including here, is the uh, my version, which was the first version done, and uh, so I lucked out there.
0: And the model that you were talking about before, that was it was based on, was that Anne Saint Marie?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, she she and her husband, Tom, Tom, you know, they they lived very high off the hog. They they made money, but they spent money and. Uh, and I guess they had some problems, and another child came. At a time maybe it shouldn't have come, and uh, Ann, uh, wasn't getting the work, and uh, maybe he wasn't getting work. You know, but I know that I tried to help her re-establish herself, just yeah. as a person, you know, and, and come back. It, uh, it worked a little bit, but no, she wasn't what she was before, because she was, I mean, I would say the worst dress that comes in for her, because I know she'd make her look fantastic. You know, she just had a knack of working that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a big talent, you know. It's, it's like acting, it's like being a scientist, a good scientist, but you don't have to study as much.
0: How did you meet Faye?
1: I was sent to Florida. She was doing her first film. She was considered an up-and-coming star, starlet. I went down to my first, I went down to do a story for Esquire, it was well received, and uh, when uh, she went on to do two more films, the third one was uh, Bonnie and Clyde, and when she came to New York, uh, her press agent said, why don't you call Schatzberg and see if we'll do more photographs? And she called me, I said, yeah, sure, you know, and I went up to her place to talk to her, and we went out to lunch, and then we kept on talking, and we started doing some photographs, we talked some more, we had some more dinners and all that, and we just... Became friends.
0: What was it like working with her?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, sometimes she's a a terror and sometimes she's a pussycat. Mm -hmm. You know, she's she's got a temperament. She's probably one of the last divas. You know, so she's uh, kind of demanding. And I was lucky to be surrounded by uh, people that I knew. Well, in my business, and you know, when I was photographing, well, I didn't, they didn't want to take any crap from her either. You know, sometimes they tell her off a little bit, which wasn't the thing to do. And one morning, uh, she uh, she was being nasty. And um, I just uh, called a rap in the morning. And I just left the set, and I thought I'd be fired, because first-time director calling a rap in the morning, you know. And uh, somehow or other, they protected me, uh, and I guess the studio never got to hear about it. And uh, Faye and I just got together again and talked it out and started working. And, and one scene where she has her list on her mirror where she puts uh, the people she won't work with. Well, after that uh, thing, she wrote my name on the list, and I left it on the list. <laughs> it's in the film. You know, uh, but we're still friends, she's just moved back to New York.
0: It must have been interesting because you dated, you were, were you en- we were engaged. engaged and then obviously by the time you we were doing the film you weren't together anymore.
1: No, she uh, went off to do a film with uh, Marcello Mastroianni, and we were having dinner one night with Jason Robards and uh, Lauren Bacall and Bacall was saying to me, what are you doing? He I'm going to do a film with um, uh, De Sica, with Mastroianni and Lauren Bacall and she looked at me and she said, you know. And uh, that's, those things happened on films. Yeah. So she fell in love with him and he fell in love with her and that lasted until the film was finished, a little after the, her film was finished. And then she did the same thing to him with somebody else. So. But she, uh, when she came to me to do this, she had already committed to it. And she yeah. lived up to her commitments. You know, she didn't get a... She had already done Bonnie and Clyde and she didn't get a big check for this film probably scale or something. You know. but, uh, and she did it. But she loved the, the part. She, you know, because I, uh, I didn't do it for her. I, I was going to do... Um, uh, I thought of using two actresses. Um, uh, I did not one of the two as the older, mm-hmm. and they had a younger actress to the younger. And when Faye expressed interest, I just told her the story one night while we were having dinner, and she was just, oh, boy, that sounds so great. know, uh, She became part of the project. And I wanted either Joanne Woodward or Anne Bancroft to play the older, mm-hmm. and then uh, I didn't know about the younger yet. But now I felt maybe I could do both with they, and uh, she be- became that. But, you know, she's like all actors, uh, especially when they're working. They're very insecure, and you got to take that into consideration. You know, they're totally naked in front of the... Everybody mm-hmm. that's what they do. They just bare themselves. And that's very difficult for somebody to do uh, and so they've got to, they've got to you know, I've, I've had it with I think all, most all actors because they always have a temperament. They always have something that uh, doesn't suit them and they've got to work that out.
0: The films you've done, you know, you really understand the characters, I feel like. You know, it's not they're not huge blockbusters, they're not Spielberg-esque films. It must be really enjoyable for the actors. I
1: think so. I mean, when Faye heard the story, I mean, she already done Bunny and Clyde. Yeah. She could do any any film she wanted, mm-hmm. and she did after that, you know, she just... But she liked that character, you know, and, and I'm hoping that happens now, because uh, the one I'm doing, and we're... we're I have to build the female character a little bit more, a little differently. It started with a male character. Uh, I, I started the whole idea with him first. So the story went, is his story. But now I realize I'm going to build the female character, which would be fantastic also. It's, a, it's sort of a, a Greek tragedy. It's a, it's a tragic romance. It can't, it can't be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And. Uh, But I, the problem I had, the biggest problem I had was, because I I like to leave a little space open for the, um, at the end, to think maybe things can can go back, like with my drug addicts, at the end of the film they're walking together, but we don't know if they're going back to drugs, we don't know what they are, but they are together, maybe something good will happen, so I like to do that, and I found it just about a month ago with this, because I was having a tough time, it was just too tragic and too final and now i think i've worked it out so it'll be a little bit more my, my style of ending mm-hmm. but i always i always think as long as you're living there's a little
2: hope Yeah.
0: yeah. that's true yeah. it seems like the the films you've done like the subject matter has been quite diverse from sort of a fashion model to then going to the drug addicts then to <laughs> Drifters and then politics, etc.
1: There's, there's an author, I don't know which one, a famous author, but he said there's only two stories, uh, good and evil. You know, so you look for that in there. It doesn't matter how, what you use to get the story told. It's the story or, or the, what you're saying, that matters. And uh, my my first films were basically with um, uh, people on the edge of society drug addicts or a model you know, they're not your normal people mm-hmm. in the streets and that may be why some people can't relate to them and uh, a musician there's not very many musicians that are out there or a politician they they're just uh, it's not uh, as if you're a store clerk or a secretary you know mm-hmm. so and I and I have nothing against stories about store clerks you know because uh, they have the same life everybody else has. It's a different relationship, a different level of uh, of drama. Yeah, and and this one this is a tough one because the the main character who's a a, a jewel thief, also a, a border character, mm-hmm. not everybody's a jewel thief, but uh, and he's a good guy. I mean, he never used a gun. Never he only robs from the rich. He, he, you know. Well, he, he's about to be apprehended. He's got a big reputation in Europe uh, as a thief, and uh, they're on to him. They, you know, he decides to leave Europe or France mm-hmm. and hide in the States or in New York. Just lose his identity until everything quiets down, maybe five, ten years. But he's still a good thief, and he feels that any time he needs to have a little extra money, he knows how to do it. The, the French mob that actually gets him his papers to come here, to get him in here, you know, through Canada and whatever he needs, and then he just, he just hides, he doesn't even have a name, he goes by an initial. Mm-hmm. He is very, he, he, he's friendly with a woman that's manages in a way, she's a, she's a refugee also, she manages a clean, dry cleaning place, and because he's also a bit obsessed by his clothes. He likes them clean and all that. He doesn't have too much money unless he robs something. And they become friends. They, uh, he goes there at night and she takes his clothes and cleans them for him. And meanwhile, they play chess. Or, uh, and they have a relationship. And sometimes, and she's about 55, 60. So it's not a, a romantic relationship. But because they're both lonely, they have sex whenever they want to have sex. And they just, you know, it's just an open relationship uh, for them. And neither one expects anything to really happen, but it gives them a little something. And they really talk about things. She has a lot of wisdom. And then he finds out that he owes the mob something. He's got to drive a car. He doesn't know what it's for, but he's going to be the driver. And he he tries to fight it. And um, his fence tells him, you know, if you really fight it, they'll kill you. So just, you better do it and get it over with, pay them back there what they're doing. And he doesn't want to. He's very angry about that. But he knows he has to do it. So he he does. He doesn't want anybody to know where he lives, so he won't let them pick him up. He has to meet them in a certain corner. He puts on a little bit of a disguise. He meets them, and and, uh, then they drive to where they have to go. Something happens, he doesn't know what, even know what it was. We don't know what it is. We, we see the, the other two guys, they come. one of them comes running out, then we hear a gunshot, then the other one comes running out, and they jump in the car, and he's, come on, let's go, and they drive off, and he accidentally kills a kid who's on a push scooter coming across the street. And it was an accident. There was a big truck blocking the corner. The kid, every day when he goes to school with his mother, they race, you know, they, she's running behind him, He's five, six, and, and he's on his scooter looking back at her, and, and then all of a sudden she sees he's coming to the corner and not stopping, she just goes crazy. She had just taken some pictures of him with her uh, phone. That's so why she's getting her bag up, That he just scoots away. But I set that up before, you know, and, uh, and she loved it. We see that they love each other. It's a great combination, and he's just miserable about it. Because when when he when he hits the kid, he stops. Wants to get out. They won't let him get out. They make him drive away. Put a gun to his head. And now he's a hit and run driver. And the story continues that way. But at one point, he's got to tell her who he who she who he is, because he finds her, and he wants to bring her back to life, back to working. She's she's catatonic, and she just doesn't do anything. And he starts to bring her back to life, and then. Unexpectedly, they fall in love. The Chinese, or the Asian lady, who's the uh, manager of the cleaning establishment, tells them, y- you, you can't do this. You've got to tell her who you are. And when he does, she just can't believe it. She doesn't want anything to do with him. And uh, that's where the story gets difficult. And uh, she just won't even see him. She won't talk to him, she won't play anything because it's just too hard for her. And I've worked it out for the kind of ending that I might like. But now, uh, and and I hadn't... Uh, you know Guillaume, can
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I? Well, uh, Guillaume came to me with the first premise, the first uh, seed of the story. And then when I started working on it, I didn't really like uh, the way the story went and all that, so I changed, it. and I started going my own way, and i I tell him every once in a while what I was doing. It didn't mean much to him yet, but then one time he said to me, do you mind if I work? Uh, Miriam has a girlfriend who's a writer, and uh, do you mind if I write a summary of it? I said, no, absolutely do it, you know. And what he wrote I hated. It just was nothing of what because I had changed the whole story of New York, mm-hmm. coming from a New Yorker rather than the Frenchman You did go either way. And, uh, and I, I just told him every once in a while a little bit, but he didn't react to it. And then I I said, Paris in May I think I asked him to introduce um, Panic and Needle Park at a festival for me and um, and after that I sat down and I told him the story and now he's in love with it and and I am too so uh, the time for me has been worth it. Mm
0: -hmm. You were just saying you've know, you sort of turned it to be a more New York sort of story I was thinking about your films and I feel like often the location is as much of a character as the other characters. Mm -hmm. The Upper West Side in Panic and Needle Park is a character. Like yeah. New York is such a character. In Scarecrow it's sort of the, the, the whole look. Uh, lo- American,
1: the, New York, New York uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and even in the Seduction of Joe Tynan, Washington is like the other, other woman.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and Street Smart with Morgan Freeman. Yeah. And, uh, you
0: know, yeah, but. Is there, do you, I mean, is that something you're conscious about, like making no, the location uh, the I'm setting? I'm
1: conscious Only to the point where I say, "I want to do my film in New York." Mm -hmm. You know, I I could, I have got this French character, an actor that wants to do it. Now, how do I get it to New York? So I have to figure out how to get it to New York, so I can feel comfortable with it. And I did. By the way, you know Trunk, they're sort of an agency. They sell photographs. You know, so they um, know everybody. And they were telling me I was having dinner with one of the executives, for lunch, and uh, she said. oh, we're doing this big project on this hotel, it's called The Edition. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, we're doing a wonderful project there. And I said, oh, tell me about it. And he said, well, you know, it's a, they have all their walls covered with New York photographs. I said, oh, so you're giving them some of my photographs? And he said, you've done New York photographs? I said, Leslie, 90% of my photographs, whether it's Bob Dylan or anything, are New York photographs. And says, "Oh, really?" So I said, "Yes. Go and look at the archive, and, and you know, get your people working. There's 25 of my photographs hanging there now. Okay. You know, so uh, my 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 archive is New York, no matter how you do it. And the people that I may have done, if I if I did Bob Dylan, he was still in my studio in New York, or it's in the in Chelsea, uh, you know, or, or somewhere. So uh, yeah, New York is." my home base. That doesn't mean I can't take yeah. it somewhere else and, and still not have New York feeling to it.
0: Like when I saw you a couple of years ago, at the time you were walking around New York and shooting all the time on like a little digital. Are you still shooting like that? Yeah, well
1: I don't only shoot on the little digital, I shoot on a regular camera too. But okay. uh, I, shoot, I like shooting what I see in the streets.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Garbage, things, you know. That's funny because when I started doing it, I realized that people don't see what's in the street. They don't see what's up there. They're just walking, going where they have to go. And uh, I'm uh, a great admirer of Irving Penn. And uh, I, uh, we're just starting to put a, an Instagram together.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I said, well, I, I'm going to look at his and Avedon's and see what they are. And uh, I come across one photograph. It's like so many of the ones I've done out there. The son of a gun. You know, he did, He's done everything. And then, if you keep going on his Instagram, there he is, on his hands and knees, with his Hasselblad, taking pictures, the you know, same way I'm taking pictures in the street, on my hands and knees. And there's nothing new. You know. the, the thing that's new is his interpretation of what that is is different than my interpretation. And, And his famous cigarettes probably inspired what he sees out there. But then he brought these cigarettes into the studio and sanitized them, which is a beautiful photograph. And he made platinum prints of them, you know. um, And I remember when I first started working in magazines, magazine, I used to look at the Vogue library and see what... Penn had done in the past, what Segulo had done in the past, you, know, you just look at other people's work. So it's, uh, I hope people are looking at my stuff and getting some inspiration from it, you know. And, uh, you know, you hear back from people, you know,
0: what they do. Um, so if they were your, like, sort of photographic inspiration starting out, who were the directors you looked to?
1: Directors? Yeah. Ingmar Bergman, of course, uh, Kurosawa. And, uh, you know, those were more of the beginning, you know, as time went on. Uh, uh, see Zhang Yimou and uh, Wong Kar Wai and, you know, people mm-hmm. that were coming along. And uh, I was broadening my scope of, of vision, you know, to... But there's so many, you know. and. There's some of the young uh, filmmakers that contact me, and then we talk, and they tell me how much I inspired them on something. I say that's uh, wonderful, and then I look at their work, and I say I don't know where I inspired them because I don't think their work is anything like mine. Mm-hmm. But my work isn't anything like Bergman's. But there was something that inspired me. Maybe the fact that he was doing things, or taking chances, or whatever. And I say you don't copying somebody doesn't mean that's the inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, well, it's nice when young filmmakers tell you that, you know, and I don't know what it is, it just might be a movement, uh, anything, you know, that uh, gives them really something that they can work with.
0: Of all of the different sort of things you've done, what are you most proud of?
1: Mm, well, I think, uh, I think of the whole thing. I, I really, you know, I haven't had an easy run at it. I've had to work pretty hard at certain times, mm-hmm. but uh, when it's passed, it seems like it was easy. And uh, I think just the whole thing, just the fact that they let me do this, you know. Mm -hmm. I would probably like to have made two or three more films that I've, I've I've had extensive research on. But, you know, when I've got it far enough, people are just not interested in what I have to say, or they don't think they are, and sometimes you can't convince them. I'm determined to get this one on. I'm turning because I really like it and I think I've solved a lot of good problems. It's not going to be a happy film, but it's going to be a film that is what life is. Mm. You know, not for everybody, but I, um, I think all of it. You know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm reading Avedon's book. I know half the people they're talking about. That's nice to know. And I was at the Yon Film Festival this year, and I, I know I'm friendly with the Mexican directors, Kiran and uh, Guillermo del Toro. When I saw Guillermo's film in Ion, I said, wow, that's a beautiful film. And I was watching from here, the Golden Globes, and when he got the prize, I yelled out, because, uh, you know, it's somebody I know, it's somebody I like, it's somebody I like his work, and uh, you don't always get that opportunity, because even with the Academy Awards, I don't think my sensibility is the same as theirs, particularly. Although this year, I find a lot of films that I like. Maybe they're not great, but I like Volga well, and they've got thirteen nominations. And I think maybe this is a good year. Things are changing. They've got more women doing things. They've got more racial people doing things. And, you know, so it's opening up to uh, uh, a larger body of. Artists and now they can give more to the people and start people thinking a little bit differently. Now we just have to get rid of the president. I never feel uh, awful saying that in New York because in New York you you don't run too many problems with that. I mean,
0: I'm sure. When you're traveling, everyone in mm-hmm. Europe is. Sort of what
1: happened to you guys? You know, how, how can you do that? You,
0: know? you have lived through, I mean, other times that were difficult.
1: Yeah, but I and I said that when he when he got elected. Well, you know, we went through McCarthyism, we, we went through Nixon, we went through slavery. We, you know, we've come out of all these things, but this is something that's different. This is the first time I'm really frightened. This guy could be, become a dictator because the people just don't. He can know what about what he does. Yeah. They find a, a justification for it, and when they and the more he gets his way, the more they see they like it, and uh, I'm really concerned about it now. So I just hope. Uh, in the next election we get enough people in there to straighten the government now so we don't have eight years of him.
0: That's interesting to hear from someone who has, you know, lived through Nixon, but to hear that you think it's worse.
1: Yeah, it is. That's the way dictators. The first thing they do is attack the press.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then, once they've got that, and, and it's working. People people really are, are attacking the press more. That's, that's our source of freedom. I just think we, we are sensible enough and we will overcome, you know, because... I just have faith. Anyway, I always have a little hope at the end of the film. I have a little hope at the end of the film. And How did you get into journalism or whatever you're doing?
0: I'm actually a historian. I now call myself a cultural historian because I'm interested in all sort of aspects of sort of culture, the arts, mm-hmm. even though I got my degrees in fashion. I've done books and exhibitions.
1: You, you photograph?
0: No, I've um, curated exhibitions mm-hmm. and uh, written a a book on a fashion designer. Which one? Thea Porter. Faye actually wore a of lot of her clothes. Thea the, Porter? Yeah. She was based in London in the late 60s, 70s. I know
1: Thea, Theodora and Yeah. Maybe she always goes to the Theodora's for her uh,
0: fashion. <laughs> well, um... I,
1: I, you know, I love Theodora, but she did Bunny and Clyde, because Bunny and Clyde for me is, is a theatrical uh, gangster film. hmm and so the clothes work and Faye just got so much acclaim from it that she just was so in love with Theodora but then what she did Thomas Crown Affair costumes didn't fit for, for that it was a little more down to earth film and with her wearing these these short skirts and the big hats and all that it just didn't work for me you know, I don't, wouldn't tell her that and I wouldn't tell Theodoras I love Theodoras
0: but she did the costumes for did she do them for Puzzle? I no? not you
1: know no, my, my, my stylist
0: oh, Joe
1: Joe did them, and uh, I thought she, you know, every time I see the film, she did a great job, you know. And they wouldn't let her get, take credit; they wouldn't give her any credit, cause she wasn't in the union. I didn't know that be in the union to do all those things.
0: I I saw that film. I've only seen it once. A couple of years ago, you presented it at Film Forum. Is it available anymore? Or is it just screenings?
1: There's a um, there's a DVD done by a French company. I tried to get Criterion to do it for a long time. So they were they were trying to do uh, Panic and *Eagle Park for two years and they couldn't make a deal with uh, Fox. And when they couldn't, I told Peter Baker Peter Baker? No, no, Peter, never uh, uh, Criterion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sent them the, um, the bad tape of it and they wouldn't even look at it. It's, it's not big uh, sales for them, they don't think. It'll catch on, it'll keep on going. It's, here, it's, it's been going for 40, 50 years now, yeah. and it's going to keep on going.
0: I'm surprised they But, but they
1: didn't pick up on it. But then, when um, the French company did it, and, and I saw Peter at the uh, French Embassy, and he ran over to me, he said, oh, that DVD is great. And I said, why didn't you do it? Oh, well, the, you know. They didn't want to look at it, they didn't even look at it. I, I sent them, who was playing at the Film Forum, I, I said, go look at it. But I, I'm glad that it was done by good company anyhow. Mm-hmm. problem is you, you have to have the facility, you have to have either... Uh,
0: you the other region.
1: Yeah, the regions, but they did do a good job.
0: With, with Panic, when the script was done by Joan Didion and her husband, what was it like working with them? Were you friendly with them?
1: Well, I knew them, they were in the fashion world and all that. They... I can't. I can't say that it was a great script. Uh, we did a lot of uh, inventing and changing, and to the point where Dominic, at the end of, uh, of Dailies, would go storming out because he you knew that we changed things. There were just scenes that were not right for these characters, and we we just work it out the way we do, and I do that on, on films. And it's funny because there was a. A, German, a young German director called me and said, you know, I just saw your films in Oldenburg, and I'm wondering why I don't know your films. And people know my work, but they don't necessarily know me. It's, getting, it's it's spreading out now, so they're getting to know me better. But it's always been that way, and it may be that I left photography when it was starting to do that, uh, you do films and you don't do a lot of films, because I don't, I turned down a lot of films. And so they know the work, you, you say Paddington, everybody knows Paddington Park, but they don't know who necessarily did it. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows uh, Blonde on Blonde. I tell my best friends, or it comes up in conversation, as oh, well, when are we working on that? And it, you, you did that? You know, it's just something that will eventually catch on. I don't, I'm not gonna hire a press agent and do all that but it's it always stays there it's always out there, and I know Dominic used to leave the screening room because he was worried that his sister and brother uh, his sister and brother would be upset that things change, but in all my films, things change you know that goes on. but I've seen her in interviews where she said oh no it he's he's done it's it's the way it's the way the film was, really basically because I always say uh I change things, but I don't change the, the essence of it. I may change the words, but it still comes out the same thing that they wanted it to say. This young director, I gave him about 50 people to interview, and one of them was Joan. I hadn't seen any of the footage. Well, I it's his, let him do it, let him put it together. And, all that. and then at one point, some others, some Americans, wanted to do something. And I said, Well, you know, I'm very tough on that, because if I, if I don't see a good premise, I'm not interested. They say, well, your life. I say, no, my life is my life. But that's a premise within that. Yeah. Why my life? And why? How did that happen? And all that. And they don't quite understand. But I understand because I've seen too many bad documentaries. with just interviews. Oh, yeah, he's great. Oh, he's a nice guy. Oh, you know, Who cares? I want to, like, you know, Bill Cunningham. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's a reason there. There's this guy that looks like anything but somebody that should be involved with fashion. And he goes in the street and he finds all these people... That are fashionable. You know, nobody else even looks at, and that's the premise. But with uh, Joan, so so I said, I said, uh, Philip, you better send me your stuff. Let me look at some of it and see, because I don't want you to waste your time. I don't want to be wasting my time. So he sends me, and he says, you know, I think I screwed up with Joan Didion. Said, oh come on, you know, you know, you don't, you can't get her isolated. And, and you know she's frail. She's, uh, he says, I know, I know. So he gets, he brings the uh, He sends me the stuff and I'm listening to, there's not very much with her, but at one point um, he must be talking to her about the dialogue and maybe changes and all that, and she said, you know, it's not that he didn't like the dialogue, he doesn't like any dialogue, (laughs) and I love that, because, you know, first of all, I think cinema is pictures, and if somebody sees that, that's great. She, she She knows when I change something, but we get along great. But I also worked on another film with her, and I had to leave them go because they were so possessive about what they had written. They, they were in it first, and they wrote something, and uh, I just didn't really care for it. And I told them, and, and then out of circumstance, Barbara Streisand got it involved. And she and her boyfriend, they also didn't like the script, but they liked the idea. So uh, we had a meeting with Joan and John, and... Um, and they're very attentive, and I love Joan. Joan is such a homebody. She sits there with her bowl of peas, cutting the ends off, and all that, listening, oh, yes, 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 mm-hmm, yes, 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 and John the same way. And then they did nothing. They were very possessive about what they had written. It was disappointing, and I had to let them go, because I got Barbara Streisand now. The studio was in love with the idea that Barbara Streisand would do it, because uh, they had a company that is an ancillary company to Warner Brothers. So they were able to get money from that, but sometimes it doesn't work, you know. And, uh, and when people, when people are really entrenched in what they've written, and I feel that about myself, because uh, you know I'm looking for a writer now, and I've really got my whole story out there, but I don't want to ever think that that's it. You sit down, and this is what I want you to do. And, you because know, I want to get. The reason I'm looking for somebody talented, and I, want, I want to get somebody that's going to contribute, make mine even better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I don't think it's better, I won't use it, because you know I, I can do that. I think it's it's important to listen to people, and you hire people because you should hire people because you're going to pay them to give them what what they have. Because um, the re- the reason I say uh, that I I want to co- uh, collaborate with somebody on this because I I think if I wrote the dialogue, everybody was speaking like me. And I can... I'm really good at doing story, but I would be afraid that I would be... everybody would t- be talking like me. I want somebody to pick my characters and give them each a voice. It'll make my work better.
0: Was that A Star is Born, the one you were mm-hmm. working on? What, hap- what ended up happening with... because you obviously didn't end up directing it.
1: No, they called me to do Little Mary Sunshine, and uh, actually John called, Peter's called. And I said, you know, I just signed to do something else. And, uh, oh, what was it? And I said, well, it's, uh, it's a remake of film And they said, oh, really? And then, uh, she told, he told the barber. Barbara said, well, can we read it? And I said, of course, you know, sent them, they, they wanted to do it. We uh, went through the process, signing everybody up and all that. And then, and John had never produced the film. Now he's going to be a producer. And, like, I wanted to have... A production manager that I'm familiar with, that I've worked with, and all that. He he, had, he wanted to have a friend. He knew he met a friend for dinner, and he went, you know, and he wanted that. And I said, well, no, I'd rather feel comfortable. You know, uh, if I make a mistake, you tell me that you think it's a mistake, and we'll talk about it. But uh, so we had about four or five arguments, and she sided with me all the time it, was, it sounded more logical what I was saying. I'm making films, he wasn't making films. And then, you know, it's funny, uh, he uh, took my wife and I, my wife of that time, down to, down south, California, to show us his salon. <laughs> you know, how do you do it gracefully to say, who the fuck wants to see your salon, you know? I, we did, We went down for the weekend, and uh, we saw his salon. We wanted to have breakfast, so there was a place there that was quite popular, so I, I didn't know about it. They found out, and. Uh, and we, we go in, and he goes up to the maitre d', the hostess, and said, uh, and it's crowded. He says, uh, we'd like a table for four. And she says, okay, um, that'll be about an hour and 10 minutes. And he says, four, we want four. And he's nodding to her, standing over there. And the girl looks over there and says, yeah, about an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> and that's what it was, you know, and I love that. But that's, that's his thing, and the, we, we fought over the hiring of a writer. He decided, he was talking to a friend of Barbara's about a writer, and he calls me in to, he says, I've been talking to this writer, and I said, wait a second, You've been talking to this writer. I said, Where was I all this time? No, no, he, he's got really good ideas. and I said, he may have good ideas, but I may have ideas that are the same as his ideas. I don't want to have him tell me his ideas, and I know I've got these ideas already. So let's make a deal with him if I like his work, and then he'll be our writer. No, 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 let, tell him your ideas. I said, I don't want to hear his ideas. And the writer says, maybe I'd better go. I said, it's probably a good idea. So He left. And I said, don't ever do that to me. Don't put me in a position like that, ever. He ah, you're a big baby, maybe. But, you know, this is business, and, you know, there's a certain way to do it, and that was not the way. He went back, and this time, hes I'm sure he said to her, listen, now it's me. I don't want you disagreeing with me. This is it. And I figure he goes to the head of the studio, who was a terrific guy. I mean, he was one of the great executives at that time that did... Uh, Two other films with him. He said, I don't know what to tell you, but now they're both saying this is this and this and this. And I said, he says, so you have to think it over. Do you want to stay or do you, under those circumstances, or do you want to? You know? So I said, let me think about it. I thought about it, and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to leave. And uh, that's what happened. They went on to make a terrible film. And I knew they would because um, the script needed a lot of work. I just don't think he was that. He went on to be a terrific executive, evidently, because he made a lot of money. Uh, with Columbia. Hmm. Was it Columbia, I think?
0: I think but, that would have been a very different film if you'd been on it. That-
1: well, you know, I wanted her to sing like Aretha Franklin. I had lots of big ideas. Whether she could do it or not, I don't know, but uh, I had different ideas. But I, I don't want this guy who wants to show his the size of his balls uh, going home and sleeping with her every night and telling her what it's going to be and we can do this and all that. I don't really like his ideas. I didn't even like his... Uh, Hair so long, but yeah. But I th- I think it's 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 a very touching story, and you can always find. But they, um, but but I had gotten rid of John and Joan,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and fortunately, my my dismissing them, they kept their percentage, their share. If it made money, I don't know if it made any money me i had to give up everything because uh, i quit
0: when we were talking about john a minute ago you mentioned that there are various people filming you for interviews did was there any documentary ever made you know
1: they all look back they find out my life and, oh your life is so interesting I yeah but so what what about it i mean if i go down and tell a guy in the pizza store and i say hey you want to hear my life story I tell them that's my life story. They might have some effect, but there has to be something that makes them relate to it themselves. And there's still people asking. The guy that did a documentary on Mo Sigmund, and I did, a, I did an interview for him and that, and immediately he wanted to do um, a story. And I said, Philippe, and I tell him, I'm, I'm, I don't care for the documentary stuff. So it's, it's tough. I do care if one is done, that is a good one. Yeah. So uh, if you have some good ideas and you want to present them to me, that's fine, but it's going to be tough. And he immediately started thinking, he sent me a couple of ideas that were awful. And I tell him, I said, Philippe, you have to keep on trying because it's, nothing really resonates uh, in this. And if there is a story, I want to be moved by it in some way. You know, then somebody, uh, an old friend of mine, and her sister were looking at the uh, Bill Milmosh's documentary, and they, they had to call me because then they saw me being interviewed. Oh, we saw you, you know, and all that. And I said, I got to see. I, I said, How was it? She said, oh, terrific. I said, Okay, so I got to look at it. Maybe, maybe he's got something. I don't. Know. I looked at it. It's not very good documentary. And Bill Moosh is a genius cameraman. He deserves more than that. I, I think they, it did all right. It's on Netflix or one of those, you know.
0: That is the problem. Often documentaries can be very... Awful, just boring. Just one, you know, talking head after another. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, and I've seen so many. The one on... Well, uh, Burt Stern had one that I didn't really care for too much. Uh, the Madman or something, whatever. And then um, Ryan De Palmer had a bad one. Uh, it's easy to do a bad one, okay. so uh, you better take your time. And uh, if it, it doesn't happen, anymore. it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not the drama. It, the whole block will be all right if they ever see a documentary on me.
0: <laughs> How long have you been here?
1: About 44, 45 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I... I uh, I was thrown around in my loft. I went to business with my uh, landlord's son-in-law. And then I didn't like the business we were in. I said, let's get out of it. Let's just dump it. And he said, no, no, no. I said, yeah, well, you want to pay these taxes? And, was that with
0: the nightclub? No, uh-huh. no,
1: no. That was uh, a farm upstate. Oh. And, uh, no, the nightclubs we did. That's what everybody thinks is uh, wonderful. But, you know, they were. It was a wonderful life. It was great. It was fun. It was, uh, it was a great time in history. You know, it's... Uh, the amount of creation, creation that went on in that period, in advertising in music, in costume, and music and costume and everything. It was a good time. Whether we're ready for another, I don't know what. But uh, the thing is, also, in that time, there were good leaders around the world. And up until a couple of years ago, the only one that was left was Castro, whether he was good or bad. He was a good leader for his people. Maybe somebody will come up with some funny idea, you know. And, uh, Say, hey, that's good. Let's do it. I'm sure there's stuff around. But you can. You can always, there's so much. Uh, I've been to Cannes about eight times, so there, there has to be footage around things like that. And I've had, I think, six or seven films represented in Cannes. So uh, I'm sure they've got great footage. I was on the jury, which was great fun, great jury. Out of it, I got two very, two three very good friends, uh, Tilda and. Uh, Quentin, you know, and uh, those things are really good. It was a funny incident, (laughs) because um, we were sitting in the jury box before the film started, and they're showing on the screen, they have everybody coming on the red carpet, and there comes Mick Jagger, and the girls, uh, Tilda and uh, Manuel Bayer, oh, Mick Jagger and Jagger carrying on, Jagger, and uh, I guess he comes by. About five minutes later, Jury handler Jerry, Mick Jagger wants to say hello <laughs> because we're friends.
0: Even if a documentary never gets made, it's it sounds like a, you know a really wonderful life.
1: Yeah, but but there has to be a reason for yeah. that wonderful life. You know, an interesting thing is something we talked about. I've been around a long time. I've been involved with lots of people and all that, and nobody knows about it. They, they know, you know, they'll see uh, um, because. Uh, Blah, on Blonde is one of the most recognized album covers, mm-hmm. as it is. Just oh, look okay, at that! If you have a twelve in a window, that will stand out. Yeah. And and things like that. And but I don't believe in a false one. You know, if if I uh, if my father was a murderer or something, and from that something else came and all that. You know, uh, he overcame that. You know, uh, or if I was born blind and then I all of a sudden I could see and I started taking pictures, you know, that's the premise. The fact that I uh, had some nightclubs, that I it was with some wonderful women and uh, wonderful men uh, for different reasons. I don't know, if somebody comes to me with an idea, I'm, I'm open for it. I, it's and it's, not, it's not an ego thing. It's, if it'll help somebody out there to see, don't quit, just keep on going, do what you have to do that's that's good for me, I always think I always use my um, my pizza guy as a I want my pizza guy Tim to see it and say, "Hey man, I saw and you did that and that and that you know, but that, they'll probably take less to make them say that because they're just getting your picture taken makes them uh be appreciative, but I really like to teach somebody something to and and there's a lot of club i mean I'm sure um What's his name on the PBS? A the funny old guy. He does great documentaries.
0: Oh, Ken Burns?
1: Yeah. I mean, he'd probably have, sit down and, and be able to think of something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you yeah, know, he's got his own thing to do. And if this was important enough, then he'd be onto it already.
0: I think, you know, just having your incredibly long career is inspiring enough, you know, to people. And the fact that you're still trying to produce. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, well, one of my uh, good friends, she worked with me for a long time, and since she's left me, she's done, I think, four books. Deborah Davis, I don't know if you know her. And uh, she's she's done um, some interviews with me. Because some of the stories are funny, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's fine to have, but you still have to have a premise, as far as I'm concerned. But who knows whether I'll be around, whether anybody will be around and all that. So she did uh, a few hours of that. I talked every once in a while to Jeff Rosen, who's uh, Dylan's manager. And uh, the documentary that Scorsese signed, he just put it together. And he didn't put it together by himself, because he gives his editor equal credit on that. But Jeff did 10 hours of recording of uh, Dylan, and Dylan wouldn't give anybody 10 hours. Jeffy Wood, because his manager, that he feels comfortable with him, he feels secure mm-hmm. with him. And that, the, the Dylan interview that goes through it, that's, that's the thread. There's mm-hmm. nobody, nobody else going to get that. Yeah. But uh, no, it takes a little bit of doing to do that. And maybe one day I'll, I'll come up with an idea, because sometimes I'm sleeping and all of a sudden, uh, that may be how I got the end of this film. You know, just, wait a second, you know. And I said, oh, my God, of course that's how it happens. You know, and we never know.
0: When young photographers or young filmmakers come to you for advice, what do you tell them?
1: Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if I can help, help them, usually like uh, the Softies, Softie Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, J- uh, Josh called me one day and... Introduced himself and all that. He said, Hey man, we have a, a, a meal together. He said, I was brought up in your neighborhood. He you know, said, so He was brought up here. And uh, immediately we uh, uh, turned on to Bonnie Greengrass and we just, and we see each other every once in a while that way. He told me that my films have inspired him. And then I read, say, I don't see it. I look at his films and I said, well, What did I do to inspire him in that? But something inspired him. That's good enough for me. and It's good enough for him. And uh, even not this last one, but the one before, with the uh, homeless gal, young gal, and all that. Um, he, it was written when when it was reviewed. It was compared to Panic in some way. And he kept saying to me, "And I use a lot of your locations. I don't see that, you know." But he sees it differently. Mm-hmm. But I remember. Uh, it, it concerned me years ago when I uh, was learning and I used to uh, look at Penn's photographs and I, I love his lighting and his perfection and all that. And I had lunch with Alex Lieberman and I said, um, it concerns me that I, I copy that or I try to copy that. And he said, don't don't, don't, don't let that concern you because it's, it's all right to copy as long as you copy somebody good and copy them well. You know, your own personality will take over and it'll be yours uh, eventually.
2: You
1: know. And I, I I understand that. Yeah. And I think
0: your photos stand out as being yours. Yeah.
1: You yeah, but, you know, when you're inside the picture, you don't think of that. You know, uh, you look at other people's pictures, they're oh, I don't know yours. It's like hearing yourself on tape. You don't want to hear yourself on tape. You know, well, but uh, we have to do it. You know, we have to get ourselves out there and we have to just you have to get yourself naked, in a sense, to uh, to express yourself without any ambitions. And, uh, but it's difficult to, to work if somebody is uptight and all, and um, sometimes, you know, sometimes the subject will take their clothes off, and for two minutes or something like that, they have a problem, and they don't, then it's, you know, they they have their clothes off, so it's nothing. Yeah. And I was photographing, uh, young Japanese gal, and uh, she saw my, she saw my uh, the, the pictures. I was showing her pictures in, the, in my archive, those pictures are somewhere, and they come up. She said, oh, those are beautiful. I said, yeah. I said, uh, thank you. I said, have you ever done any? She said, no. I said, would you? But she said, why? I said, why? She said, nobody ever asked me. I said, oh, I'm asking you. She said, oh, OK. And she did some. And we did about three or four sessions, some with clothes and without clothes and all that. And then, after we were maybe on our third session of shooting, she said, you know, I feel, I, I don't feel comfortable. I, feel, I said, oh, well, you know, then you shouldn't do it. And I said, and besides that, I didn't see it. She, she may have felt that, and I can usually tell from you when know, I'm photographing somebody if they're not comfortable. It's mm-hmm. my job to make them comfortable didn't see it at all.
0: I remember <clears throat> the last time I was here, you, you showed Susan and I a picture of Faye in the bed, I think, nude? Or like, slightly covered? No,
1: she's um, in a chair. Oh, in a chair. Yeah, mm. one of those chairs with her bathrobe open and mm. her breast is exposed. Beautiful photograph. Yeah, I
0: remember being she, like, this was the most does, beautiful
1: photograph. She doesn't, I told her I wanted to use it. And she said, no, 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 I don't want any nudes. there I said, okay, so I didn't use it. It's a beautiful photograph. And I'm waiting to show it to her. I actually made it because she, she's asked me to photograph her. And, you know, just regularly, because uh, she just wants to get some different photographs. And I made up a copy of it that I want to show her, but I made it up without her head. She said, what do you think of this photograph? And I want her to say, oh, it's beautiful. And i say, and that's what you won't let me use. <laughs> and, you know, I'm my picture is sitting there waiting. And uh, she just came back from California, she went to visit her son for the holiday and she asked me if I would photograph and I said, yeah, and I'm going to spring it on her, <laughs> but she'll, she'll say no, and she's, and she's had nudes I semi-nudes published somewhere, I think, for, I forget the photographer that's, um, but um, maybe we'll get to it, but I just think it's a beautiful photograph. Yeah. Good. Shouldn't uh, let foolish things uh, stop her. So we get back to uh, now. Who does that? Who did that coat belong to? <laughs> it was my
0: grandmother. Well, my step grandmother's.
1: Yeah, because it it was, I. Those are the kind of coats that I worked on when mm-hmm. I remember. And now they're fashionable. In those days, you had three backs that you could use, three collars... Free sleeves, so you had your choice in that. Nobody wasn't was making designer furs. You know, yeah. maybe there were a few very great designers. and Then, as years went on, they they started to fight against furs altogether, and then they came back through designers, and they're wonderful. And young people take their grandmother's uh, jackets or.
0: Yeah, i think I'm sort of the receptacle of all of the furs in my family. This is falling apart because I've worn it so much. Well, you
1: know, in today's uh, world, we were clothes that are falling apart. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a different attitude towards all that stuff.
0: Your family's were you in the fur district?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, 27th,
0: 27th. It was a very different time then.
1: Yeah, but I didn't like, I really didn't like it, it was not me. And it's funny because, uh, you know, my father was the youngest brother, and so he was the salesman. Mm -hmm and uh, he used to send me out with a box full of uh, coats, pretty heavy, and send he sent me to Russick's. you know Russick's?
0: I've heard the name. Yeah, they
1: were on Fifth Avenue. They were a big sort of department store, but they specialized in furs, okay. and that's had Augustus's family.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: okay. Yeah, so, um, we both come from the fur business in one way or another.
0: I know you had kids with your first wife. Did you stay close to them after you uh,
1: I'm No, uh, I think they were really affected by the divorce. Mm-hmm. And the older one has other issues, too. But we see each other, but it's not, Hey, Dad, how you doing? And all that. It's not that kind of, kind of camaraderie. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost, uh, he's a... He's a Ashamed to say no. So he says yes to uh, a dinner or lunch. And uh, we think differently. We're very much different. The the younger one is easier to talk to, uh, but he lives out in uh, Arizona. But you know, I see too many uh, people like this. I'm reading um, Avedon. Now, Avedon and his father didn't get along at all. I didn't get along with my father, but Avedon and his father didn't get along. There's you know, no, no, nothing that says you have to get along. Mm-hmm. you got to make it work the best way you can. And, um, although he, uh, I, and I just read that part where um, there's different people talking about working for him and uh, what his life was like. And, but they say that when John, who's his son, would come to the studio, and usually he was always angry, which is the way my older son is, Avedon would stop whatever he was doing for John. He wouldn't stop it for other people. He wouldn't stop it for Mike Nichols. He wouldn't stop it for anybody that comes into the studio. Like his son, he would stop it for. So, it's, it, in, in one instance, it's a, a big guilt complex. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think um, the Avedon knew that he was gay for a long time. So I guess that may be a making up for something. That's why he married and married, and then he had um, Jones his only child, I think. But then uh, people who worked for him, who were very close to him, say, they, they they don't even they don't ever remember him dating. I mean, his whole life was his work, and he did a good job of it. You know. But it, it probably takes something away.
0: Yeah. Would you say the same thing for yourself, that your whole life is your work, or how...?
1: Uh, no, because I came into it much later, uh, you know, I came into it not knowing what my life was. I wasn't a photographer, I mean, uh, I think Abaddon did uh, photography in the uh, Coast Guard or something, and, uh, so he had something going, and, and so he was able to follow through. But I didn't know what, I mean, when I went into the little studio, I sort of fell down the rabbit hole, and everything black and white and red, you know, it was a whole different thing. I didn't know that this existed, so I had to learn about it. And I fortunately uh, went to work for a photographer that would teach me because he was out there. He was social. He was, you know, he was a good photographer. You no, know, I think we we all do with it what we have to. You know, just take that life that we're presented, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't can't complain I would like to have made maybe one or two more films and I'm still made you know, uh,
0: thank you so much for talking to you're me welcome that, really.
1: no it was easy talking to you. that's the important thing
0: Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Jerry Schatzberg. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with artists, models, and fashion and textile designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.